Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now hear these words. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who, will te who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the holy body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of inequity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The epistle just heard is a little letter called the letter to James, and it's probably the most controversial book in the New Testament. I think it really goes back to Martin Luther's comment on this book. He called it a, an epistle of straw. Why was he so down on this? Well, he thought it was a sh long on works and short on faith by grace. I don't know if Luther might be a little hard on our author. Are we wrong to assume that he believed his readers already had the underlining penny, underpinning of faith by grace. You know, sometimes you can only spend so much time in the upper altitudes of theology until you need to land the plane, to come down on the landing strip of the doing of faith. If, if I was going to give a kind of a second title for this book, I, I would call it an essay on practical Christianity, and, and that's not such a bad thing. Now, another complaint about this book is, yes, it's practical, but, well, it just seems like a lot of it's a child's bank. It's dealing with the pennies and nickels of things. And he spends a good bit of a chapter talking about the green-eyed monster jealousy that has crept into the church. N nothing bad to talk about, but then he, and he talks about um, preferential treatment that's become a part of church life. Those aren't 
unnecessary issues to talk about it, but are they the larger things? Well, you've heard me say it from this pulpit before. The longer I'm here dealing with myself and the world around me, I, I get confused. What's, what's a little thing? What's a big thing? It was Shakespeare that wrote, trifles, trifles, light as air, are jealous confirmations, proofs as strong as holy writ. Really? Shakespeare said that? Trifles, light as air, proofs as strong as holy writ? Yeah. I don't know sometimes. What's, what's little, what's big? Most of my life isn't made up of red letter events and days. It's made up of hints and gestures and intimations. There's this author, Thomas De Quincey. He was a rather unusual guy, but he was something of a genius, and he wrote this essay entitled On Murder. Parts of it go like this. I'll warn you, this is tongue-in-cheek, okay? So De Quincey writes, Many a person who, upon committing some murder, begins a downward slide that may go from murder to maybe even robbery and then all the way to Sabbath-breaking and incivility and all the way to procrastination. Once you begin this downward slide, you never know where it's going to end. Many a person can date his ruin from some murder or other that he thought little of at the time. Do you, do you catch the genius of, of his humor? Just, you're supposed to flip it around. So really now, what are the little things? What, what, what are the big things? Our, our author admits here in this third chapter that, well, he is talking about a relatively speaking, the small member of the human body, something called the tongue. And he's talking about what happens when the tongue goes to work. Word here, a word there. Is that really a big thing? And he would say, oh, yes. We're talking this morning about a power we all have. It's a unique power. When you woke up this morning, and once again, you took your place in this universe as a homo sapien species, it wasn't long before you reached across the chasm between you and another person and you did something. You said something. You offered a word. And do you know that there are no more in other entities or creatures that do this in the vastness of creation? I was thinking about turnips this week. I mean, turnips, they, they have this complete and complex and helpful cycle, but it's all without words. How about the roses that uh, bless our gardens with beauty and fragrance? It's all without language. I mean, aren't you impressed with all the things that are going on out there without words right now? I mean, genetic codes and vast bird migrations and uh, swirling galaxies and stormy weather and ocean tides, all of this wordless. I mean, these are complex entities and movements, all without language. Now, I think we're connected to all created things. I think we have much in common with the dirt beneath our feet and the stars above our head. But I would suggest if we are going to grapple with what it means to be a human being, we have to get in touch with what it means to be people of a word, speak. Hey, we come by it honestly, that power. Made in the image of God, right? What do we see God speaks and says, let there be light. And there is light. This is interesting. The Hebrew word, D-A-B-A-R, means both word and deed. Do you get that? 
To say something is to do something. When you say, I hate you, or you say, I love you, or I forgive you, who knows what those words do? But whatever it is, they can never be undone. What has been locked up in the human heart is released irrevocably and can never be pulled back. Words make things happen. If anybody understood this, any biblical writer, it's, it's this writer to the letter James. He comes along and he says, if you think every time you open your mouth and you say a word here and a word there, it is of no consequence, think again. Not so fast, he says. And he says, now just picture a, 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 an ocean vessel boating about the Mediterranean, huge vessel. And that entire vessel can be turned. Turned with what? This little instrument. Most people are never going to see it. It's almost unnoticeable because it's down there beneath the waterline. It's called a rudder. And he says, oh, the tongue? It's like a rudder. One slip and all kind of things happen. And James says, and a lot of it's not good. He knows the human situation. This is our condition. We move about outside of paradise. We live east of Eden, which means we've lost the trustworthiness of things like our language. And now what do we have? We have words that are slippery things and weevil things and deceitful things and hurtful things, right? Yeah. He says, you know, it doesn't take much. A little word, poorly stated, in the wrong place. It's just like a spark on a dry forest floor. It's like a spark in a bed of pine needles. Great is the blaze. Yeah. It was some years ago, I wasn't here in this town or this church. Man in midlife came to me in about the first 10 minutes of the conversation, he was somewhat embarrassed. He says, I, I'm gonna tell you something and, and it really shouldn't still matter to me. I know better. I mean, I know there are things in life, you just park them and you, you move on, but I just haven't been able to do this with that moment. I said, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, growing up, um, my dad's dream for me is I would be the next Hank Aaron, the next Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Uh, now, I love baseball. He said, I love collecting little bubblegum cards. I like the uniforms, but I never was really very good at it. I wanted to be, I tried to be. But we're in the backyard one day and dad's hitting fly balls. I'm doing fairly well. And then he starts hitting these rocket-like grounders. This is what the guy said, he said, look, if a ground ball had had biscuits for wheels, I still couldn't have caught up with it. So here I was, he said, I was bumbling, I was fumbling, and after about 20 minutes, dad throws down the bat, his face is all red, and he says, I always wanted a son, and I got you. He said, that was 20 years ago. 20, that was 20 years ago, you know. He said, those those words are still stuck in the wall of my heart. Okay, yeah. Sticks and stones break my bones. I don't buy that bit of doggerel. Oh, we act like words are just cotton balls. Boop, boop, you know. They just bounce harmlessly off people. After all, words have no weight. They have no taste. They have no smell. I mean, after we've thrown them out there, don't they just go their way? Poof, no, no. They're more like stones thrown into the pool of our personal history. When somebody speaks out of their disgust, their frustration, or their anger, even when they don't act upon those words, those words make something happen. And often it's not good. 
Okay, that's enough of that. I mean, we, we know about that. I mean, as they say, sin is kind of a boring deal. When I start talking about sin up here, it's a bunch of reruns. You know, there's not a whole lot new about it. So let's move on. Our author, he says, yes, words have the power to curse and destroy. But he says they also bless. They can bless. You know that. Yeah. I mean, a great thing about thinking about that is that you don't have to be a wordsmith. You don't have to be an advanced linguist. Uh, the words are out there for you, me, and we can use them, and we can bless. I wish I could say to you this morning that James is going to give us a lot of guidance and leadership how to move this a little farther down the road. Um, he says some things that are helpful, but I'm going to turn to another source of helping us move forward with this sermon. Oh, by the way, I think he does help us. There in the beginning of his letter, he says, Greetings to you from a servant of God in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to go, you say, to, to Jesus Christ. I read Tom Long some years ago said, one of the claims of the gospel that in Christ Jesus, we get our words back, the trustworthiness of our words. We learn once again how to speak words of grace and truth. You see, that's our hope this morning. You, you see what we do week in, week out? We come, it's like we go to language school. We, we come to church and we're in a robust family of Christ, and it's like being in language school. We learn how our faith informs not just our living, but our speaking, okay. our speaking the truth. But now we've got to remember, in God's view, speaking the truth is never just about factuality because words do things and words make things happen. It's about consequence. It's, it's not just a, a matter of message, but impact. So how do we know we're speaking that kind of truth? Jesus helps us. Remember that golden standard? He said, when you're not sure what you're going to do or how you're going to act or how you're going to speak, come back to this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, listen, so that means our aim in speaking as Christians isn't just accuracy, but it's to love God and to increase the love of neighbor every time we speak. Anybody remember Don Rickles? The younger people here don't, you know. My age and up, I, Don Rickles was a, this kind of hard-boiled comedian. He was often on the Johnny Carson show. I, I gotta admit, I, I, I spent a lot of late night moments laughing at Don Rickles. I, you know, though, boy, he could rip people up one side and down the other. And he was an equal opportunity ripper. He would rip Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon, and some poor widow sitting out there on the front row. I mean, he would rip anybody and everybody. I would call him the master of the put-down. Another way of saying that, he knew how to put people in their place. Now listen. Ironically, that's what we're called to do in our Christian speaking. It's just we have a different view of place, you know. Crowned with the glory of God. Every person of worth and dignity, yeah. Putting people in their rightful place, their God-given place. Speaking to increase the love of God and love of neighbor. Now, moving ahead with that, I want us to remember two things. When Jesus helps us think about neighbor, 
he really pushes the envelope, doesn't he? We, we think of neighbor and we go like this. Neighbor, oh yes, those I love dearly and uh, value clearly, you know, my little group, that's neighbor. Jesus comes along and says, excuse me, neighbor is like this. Remember the lawyer came up one day and, and he thought if he could get Jesus in a nice debate, he could get rid of all this business of, you know, doing something for somebody else because he'd get Jesus, everybody could leave confused about what it meant to be a neighbor. So Jesus, and, and the lawyer says, oh, by the way, Jesus, why don't, just who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the good Samaritan, by the time Jesus is finished, there it is in the lawyer's lap. Oh my goodness, neighbor means anyone and everyone, Jesus will just not put limitations on the reach of his love. You hear what that means? Neighborly speaking then includes the stranger standing by you in the line at the post office. It includes the, the cashier who's about to fold her tent and she's tired and frustrated. It even includes the person who might be disagreeing with you. You know, we're gonna have some of that over the next weeks and months in our denomination. We will be tested you know, in our neighborly speaking. I'm very sure of this. Uh, we're, we're forever being given neighbors we would not have known without Jesus. I'm gonna say we are forever being given neighbors we would not have known Jesus. I have a friend that likes to talk about um, his mail carrier. It's a woman. And um, she is neighborly and friendly to everybody. He says, one and all. She's, that's just the way she is. And he says, I've gotten to know her pretty well because I'm retired. I'm always bumping around the front yard. I'm often there when she comes up. And she always begins with a warm greeting. And then she's asked, how are you doing? Now, some people ask that question, and they look you in the eye, and they really want to know. And she, he says, that's the way it is. And if I don't immediately respond, I'm doing fine, she wants to just poke around a little bit to, to see what's the matter. And then he went on, he said, I want to tell you the truth, Rob. Sometimes I come up with a little problem. Because what she says is so affirming, I'd just like for her to tarry a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Do you hear that? Every day she gets up and she takes her place as a species called Homo sapiens and she understands this power she has of the human tongue. She understands it. And she walks into a world and her world is not a world of um, nameless strangers or numbers on a mailbox, every person of worth and dignity and every human encounter an opportunity to edify to build up the human spirit. So first of all, remember, um, when we talk about neighborly speaking as Christians, it's anyone, everyone. Second thing, never underestimate the power of saying just the right word at the right time to the right person. If we were to get in little circles here today and just spend a moment sharing something. I think everyone would have something to say. And the question would be this. Has there been something said to you over the last few weeks or the last month? A sentence, a word, a phrase. 
that launched you, that affirmed you, that empowered you, that put something good there that wasn't before, I think just about every one of us could say, yeah, yeah, I could, I could. Her name was Mary. I came across this story recently. She was a banker and working for a large um, national bank in Atlanta. She said, you know, it, it was a good job. I'm, she said, I'm not going to say the place wasn't friendly or the work atmosphere was toxic, but she said, for whatever reason, she said, probably something more inside me, but I just never felt like I was making a real contribution that made any difference. I felt like I was just a cog in a pretty big machine. And she said, now we're at the end of the year. You know, have these end of the year reviews, and some of you have been through this. And she said, my supervisor and evaluator was a woman named Sandra. She said, I really wasn't looking forward to it. I've been through these before. And you know, you just check the boxes. And we were about 10 minutes in, and she said, Sandra just took the stack of review, just, just moved the stack of papers to the side. And she said, Mary, you're a very smart and you're a very talented woman. I want to ask you a question. If you had no limitations of finance or time, I want to ask you, what new thing would you like to see us do around here? I'll repeat it. What new thing would you like to see us do around here? And Mary's going, you know, nobody's ever asked my ideas before. And at first, I didn't know what to say. But then once when I got started, my words came out like a waterfall. But she said, that's not the thing I remembered about that moment. She said, what I remembered most was the first time I felt I had found a peace in my place. And I counted the words. It's about seven or eight words. Mary, what new thing would you like to see us do? I mean, think about that. Six, seven, eight words. And Mary's She's changed. She's altered. I don't know. Maybe Sandra had been to Jesus' language school. Maybe she knew how to speak in a way that increased the love of God and love of neighbor. Maybe she knew how to talk people in a way that put people in their place, their rightful place, their God-given place. Remember where we started? I was a little confused. I you know, said, you know, sometimes I don't... No, is it a big thing? Is it a little thing? I, I can't always differentiate. I remember Fred Craddock one night saying, there came this moment when God wanted to step back and get the really big picture. God was trying to get the really big picture. And the next thing we heard was a baby crying in a straw-filled manger. You mean that's it? Has God lost sight of the big picture? What does God think one child, one baby can do? The one baby became the one God-man Jesus. Hmm. You tell me what's, what's big, what's little. Oh, and by the way, along his way, Jesus would say things like this to his followers. Friends, may you understand that one word of loving kindness does not go unnoticed by the God who smiles upon it. Not a trifle, not a little thing.